Hey, Jeremy, did you ever read the back of a sweet and low packet as a kid? I no. I, if I did, I don't remember it. Do you, Why would you, it say? Do you remember the like the scary cancer warning? Uh, no. Was there a cancer warning on the sweet yeah. and low packet? <laughs> yeah. Okay. To, so to jog your memory, the sweet and low packet from 1977 until 2000 read, quote, use of this product may be hazardous to your health. This product contains saccharin, which has been determined to cause cancer in laboratory animals. That's reassuring. <laughs> I remember that as a kid. I feel like I'd be at like the Greek diner after the tip-off game with friends. And people were like, Ugh, should we touch this? <laughs> it causes cancer in lab rats. <laughs> Can I ask you the more controversial part about this sweet and low packet? Uh, yes. Is it sweet and low or sweet and low? Is it an N apostrophe or is it and? It's... Thank you, because I was looking at it, I'm looking at it right now, and it's sweet and low. So S-W-E-E-T apostrophe N, and then oh. capital L-O-W. So I think it's like sweeten, like to sweeten something low. So but I thought it was sweet and low. Okay, so we, at least we cleared up the biggest controversy. Let's get back to <laughs> cancer for a second. Well, let me Which... take you down a sweet little historical path and give you a taste of the origin story of the first artificial sweetener. So this is from information from the American Chemical Society or the ACS website. Um, so saccharin was the first widely commercialized non-nutritive sweetener. That's kind of what they're referred to a lot in a lot of the research is non-nutritive sweeteners, meaning they don't give you anything. They don't give you calories. They don't give you any type of nutrition. It's just a sweet taste in your mouth. Um, it, saccharin was discovered in 1879 by Constantine Falberg at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, Fallberg was working with the coal tar derivative called benzoic sulfamide when he noticed a sweet taste on his hand. So he was working at his bench and then somehow got his hands in his mouth. <laughs> Some sources state that he laid his cigarette on the lab bench and then it tasted sweet when he picked it up to take a drag. Anybody who is a science major definitely knows that when you're in the lab, you always taste whatever you're uh, experimenting with. It's just the rule. Yeah, and smoke and like open flame around. Just do all that. It's all fine. In fairness, at that time, dentists also didn't wear gloves. So I think we, <laughs> I think we know where we were at this moment in life. Put their bare mitts right in your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> so he arbitrarily named this compound saccharin. So it's funny because in my mind, like saccharin is, is such a word I've used so much before it means to me like something that's sickly sweet or artificially sweet. But like he just made it up. <laughs> it's just this guy smoking cigs and naming things. All right. So as early as 1906, saccharin became controversial because of the food additive concerns that were prompted by Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Did you ever read The Jungle? I, uh, I never read The Jungle that I know of, but I know which book you're referencing. Yeah. yeah I feel like we've got brought up in like high school courses or college courses a lot. Um, so Harvey Wiley, this guy was the head chemist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He proposed a saccharin ban, but President Teddy Roosevelt stated, anyone who says saccharin is injurious to your health is an idiot. <laughs> and Wiley's career was finished. Doesn't because... it, I mean, like, this doesn't feel like any different than today. <laughs> then the president said, shut up, guy. Science is stupid. If you don't we... like it, get bent. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so then saccharin's use became widespread during World War One because of a sugar shortage. That's hard to say. Say it. Saccharin became popular because of sugar no. shortage? Sugar shortage. Sugar shortage. 
<laughs> in the 1960s, it began to be promoted for weight loss, most familiarly under the, the trade name Sweet and Low. This is by the Cumberling Packaging Corporation. Where do you think that is? Cumberling, obviously. Cumberland. No, it's in Brooklyn, New York. Perfect. Yeah. So soon thereafter, food scientists discovered that saccharin causes bladder cancer in rats. So then in 1977, an act of Congress required that the sweeteners packaging, that it bears this cancer warning label. But then in 2000, scientists found that the, that human beings metabolize saccharin very differently than rats. And so the warning label was then rescinded. <laughs> so that's, that's that uh, background. And then today, despite all the competition from other sweeteners and it's sort of like, in my mind, gross metallic aftertaste, saccharin also just remains a really popular choice for an artificial sweetener. So however, recently in May of this year, the WHO released a guideline for non-sugar or non-nutritive sweeteners. They recommended against, quote, the use of non-sugar sweeteners to control body weight or to reduce risk of non-communicable disease such as diabetes type 2 and cardiovascular disease. So what's all the hubbub about? Are artificial sweeteners actually bad for us? Does data exist to support a link between artificial sweeteners and cancer or metabolic disease or any other health concerns? Are these sweeteners actually souring our health? Or are all these claims just a bunch of sweet nothings? What do you think, Jeremy? You want to learn more? I was hoping you were going to go through the rest of the palette, like bitter, bitter and salty. And that was good. This is a great intro. I'm very interested. I, I, I find sweeteners to be a very interesting conversation. I'm excited to learn more. Brad, so it's just the two of us today. It's going to be a nice, sweet episode, just you and me. And the listener. Right. Yes. The three of us. Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen. And we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. All right, we are back. Jeremy, quick, name as many kinds of artificial sweeteners as you can right now. Does brand name, can I use sure, brand name? Whatever. It should okay. be brand name or the the IUPAC name. Okay. Splenda equal sweet mm -hmm. and low mm -hmm. with the apostrophe N as we've now established. <laughs> and, um, stevia. Uh, um, I That's feel like, good. yeah, I, I'm like. There's uh, only really one that you're missing and it's kind of a newer one. I, I give up. Yeah, so monk fruit was the other one. Oh. Yeah. How did I miss monk fruit? <laughs> I've yeah, actually so, never heard of monk fruit, so I'm going to learn. Yeah, it's kind of one. Of, it's in the same sentence as um, stevia. So yeah, aspartame, which is NutraSweet or equal, which is what most of the hubbub has been around lately. Yeah, I feel like aspartame is the famous one. I feel yeah. like everybody's heard of aspartame. Yeah, that's NutraSweet or Equal. So that's one of the ones you said first. Saccharin, which is sweet and low, we just talked about. Um, sucralose, which is Splenda. And then, please forgive me, this, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but monk fruit is uh, Luohan Guo, L U O H A N G U O. And that's monk fruit or monk fruit in the raw is like the brand, like Stevie in the raw, monk fruit in the raw. Um, and then purified stevia leaf extra extracts. So that would be like Truvia, Purevia, others. 
Um, and then uh, there's also things like called sugar alcohols, like xylitol and sorbitol. Those are the ones that are in chewing gum. And they're considered artificial sweeteners, but we won't spend a lot of time on those in this episode because they're not, they're really only used for like chewing gum and stuff. I'm really excited so. for you. Are you going to tell me the difference between those? Because I, I'm baffled at like that those are four different sweeteners, five different sweeteners, yes. if you count my favorite monk fruit now. Uh, are they all just like artificial like sugars? Like, yes. Are they, they're just different chemicals that like we can't absorb or something? Yes, correct. Yes. Okay. And like, what's the difference between stevia and like aspartame? Yeah. Well, actually, I was going to get that later, but we just talk about it now. Um, so, yeah. So, like, saccharin and aspartame, those are the old school sweeteners. But, you know, like, surely the newer, more natural, like, natural sweeteners are better, right? So, stevia and monk fruit extract, they're often touted as like natural sweeteners since they're extracted from the stevia leaf and then the monk fruit. However, the extraction involves chemical processing, just like anything else <laughs> does. Although there's no evidence that these processes like affect your health outcomes or the safety of the final product in any way. Um, stevia and monk fruit extracts are still considered non-nutritive substances since they provide no direct nutritional value. But there's no data to suggest that they are better or worse for you than any other non-sugar substitutes. Um, they're just likely to be a little more expensive, I think. <laughs> what are your thoughts about stevia and monk fruit extract? I have no idea what they are. I just know that they seem to like sneak their way into almost everything. Yeah. Like I pick up labels and I'm like, oh, look, it's unsweetened. And then I go to the bottom. It's like stevia. And I'm like, son of a. I just like I just <laughs> wanted it to be like, oh, son of a bitch. But it's like, who cares? And that's kind of what this whole episode is going to be. about. I guess it probably doesn't say a lot of a little bit of who cares. Um, especially with, and we'll delve into all the newest changes about aspartame. I guess the question I have is like, these clearly make something sweeter, but on the label, they can say zero grams of sugar. So Correct. it's not sugar. It's so not sugar. I guess my question is, is like, how does it make it sweet without being a gram of sugar? Like, do we just not absorb these things? Like, I, that's my question. Yes. And I'll get to one different situation in the end. That's a fun little end to this whole thing about okay about absorbing stuff. All right. Well, let's delve into the WHO's statement about artificial sweeteners. I'm just going to call them artificial sweeteners because non-sugar sweeteners is really hard for me to say. I already have like enough sibilance in my S's. I know I kind of oddly pronounce them. So I'll be, I'll try to minimize my sibilance. Um, so the WHO statement was based on a meta-analysis that included randomized control trials and observational studies. So there are varying levels of evidence strength depending on the type of study. Um, I would definitely recommend that our listeners check out the infographic in the Instagram post by the Unbiased Science Pod. I absolutely adore them, Jeremy. I don't know if you've been paying attention to their content. They are fantastic. It's two scientists that like to debunk things and give really um, helpful, meaningful nuggets of information. So a, a fair amount of my jump off points for this episode was based on some of their content on Instagram, which I loved. So the randomized controlled trials reviewed in the meta-analysis um, that helped spur the WHO statement about artificial sweeteners um, showed that there was no effect of artificial sweeteners on short-term markers for diabetes and cardiovascular disease, whereas some of the observational studies did. 
Um, and then to counter that, many other studies, including meta-analyses of randomized control trials, including one in the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, in 2022, really conflict with the conclusion drawn by the WHO's data. So basically, the WHO acknowledges that the guidance is based on evidence that has, quote, low certainty, unquote, um, and may not accurately represent the true impact of artificial sweeteners. So really, there's no definitive evidence that the use of artificial sweeteners has any effect on non-communicable disease. Do you have any thoughts about that? I believe I was muted. <laughs> you were, sir. I had a very compelling thought that you didn't hear. The artificial sweeteners to me are enigmas. They, mm -hmm. it seems like one is around for a while, people use it. And at some point something comes out that makes you feel like you probably shouldn't be using it. And that one kind of like stops the usage and then another one shows up. And it's been like that every 10 to 15 years, it seems like. And what's interesting about the statement that the WHO put out is like, my interpretation is basically like medical providers should not be telling people to use these things to try to accomplish health-based outcomes. Yeah. Well, there, so their statement came out that says they recommend against the use of artificial sweeteners to control body weight or reduce the risk of non-communicable disease, which is like not wrong, but it's also like why? And their data is shaky at best. So there, it, it just, to me, it's one of these things where there's some studies that suggest some things. A bunch of people get together in a society and put out a statement. That statement gains a lot of traction in the media and in social media. And then the interpretation is not that, that sort of the milk toast, um, you know, conclusion that the WHO is saying like, nah, I don't know, there, there's nothing to really say that they're doing anything for you or against you. And it kind of skews it negative where I think the the perception is, oh, so they're bad. Like, it's bad for you, right? I don't know. That's my interpretation of that. But then my reaction to it is, is like, how many physicians or people are telling them, like, go have these sweeteners instead of the thing you're having? Maybe they are. But again, is the goal to, like, help them lose weight or have less issues with their diabetes? And then you have to also weigh the the pro con. So if I have a diabetic patient who loves themselves some, I don't know, Coke, Coca-Cola, and I'm able to get them to change to diet Coke and their A1C, uh, their diabetes control all of a sudden gets a lot better. Did I just make them live longer and have a better life? Maybe with more risk, I guess, from the sweetener, but also like which one was riskier, I guess, yeah. Yeah, if I had to make that choice. So I don't think we live in a vacuum. I think it kind of depends on what you're doing the risk benefit ratio. But I also think the vast majority of these decisions are not made by a, a clinician making recommendations. People are making these decisions when they go in and they're reading labels and they're saying, I was told I should have less carbs or I should have less sugar. And so I'm going to find the thing that has zero sugar, but then I like things that taste sweet. I don't like it when it has no flavor. A lot of people don't like things that have no flavor. And so they get the things that have the sweetener. Um, and so again, is if the goal is I don't want to gain weight, I'm trying to lose weight, I'm trying to lower a meta, um, you know, a metabolic problem. I think that has to be a personal choice that you are taking on now, maybe a, 
undisclosed risk of what that sweetener could do to you long term for the trade off or for whatever reason you're doing for it. So I think that the mathematics really are, comes at play here. And I just think most of this mathematics is not being done in the doctor's office. So I'm not sure the okay. WHO statement is really going to. I don't think it's going to affect a lot of recommendations in a doctor's office. I think what's going to happen is it's going to scare the shit out of people who were already on the fence about whether I should be having a sweetener and our short-term memory is fantastic. So, and by that, I mean, it's not. So like a year from now, we'll just be back on sweeteners again, yeah. because we're trying to like be healthier. That's my, that's my very long-winded response. No, I agree. I think that your, your, your points hold water. And I think you're right. This is more of a reaction by consumers than it is by healthcare professionals. It reminds me a little bit of the podcast that did uh, a coverage of the the beef against Oprah Winfrey when the when like the the cattle ranchers sued her because she had um, someone on her show talking about beef and mad cow disease <laughs> and they were trying to sue Oprah for like millions and millions of dollars and Oprah ended up winning but it was just because there was you know there was panic about beef giving you giving people in America mad cow disease but yeah it's like the situation of you make a, a broad statement and it has you know some ripple effects about how people choose their nutrition and choose their buying habits I think the other thing and I'm, I was looking up that infographic that you had because I wanted to describe it slash look at it from the that but but the 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 thing that I think is I don't know if I'm looking at the right post here Mine's a video. Do you have an infographic that's not a video on there? On their thing? Uh, on Unbiased Science? Hold on. Like, I'm looking. You liked. Uh, we as a podcast liked this post, this specific one. It is a woman talking to me about how aspartame does not pose a health risk to humans, cancer, or otherwise, especially at levels we consume. Does that sound familiar? Yes. Was, it's this one. At, oh, here's the infographic. cancer. All right. So they, okay. Sure. Yeah. I, 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 well, I just kind of wanted to describe what the, the, it looked like, which it's a good infographic, which kind of yeah. tells you, does aspartame cause cancer? Absolutely. Okay. So, but the other thing that I think was interesting that is pointed out here is that like dosage matters. Yes. Um, and again, uh -huh. I think the concept is, is like, if you sat there and took every sweet apostrophe and low packet and dumped them into your mouth on a repetitive basis over and over and over again, you maybe putting yourself at risk for something, but that may be true with a lot of things that we consume on a regular basis right. yeah. that we don't get told we shouldn't have. And so fear is a fear about health-based consequences is not benign. Oh, absolutely. Um, so right. I, and I think you have to give it some context, which, yes. I mean, let me continue to give you, well, particularly what about cancer? Um, so Jeremy, have you heard about any other artificial sweeteners being linked to cancer other than saccharin and lab rats? Um, no, and I don't follow this all that closely. I just yeah. have always been a little skeptical personally about sweeteners. Yeah. Well, another WHO statement, this time via the International Agency for Research on Cancer or the IARC, um, just, you know, this past month, I think it was July 14th, listed aspartame as, quote, possibly carcinogen carcinogenic to humans. Um so the IARC is a group that was created by the WHO to classify substances with regard to their potential um, carcinogenicity. Um, and they have a scale. I don't know if you're familiar with that scale I'm not. at all. Okay. So group one are the baddies. 
Group one is these things are carcinogenic to humans. They just are. This, there's a demonstrable causal relationship between the substance and cancer develop, development in humans. So, so make, yeah, so some examples. Yeah. Name, name some more that, I mean, I didn't, I didn't do all of the list, but like, you know, what else would you think would be on it? Asbestos. Alcohol, asbestos, coal emissions, formaldehyde, oral contraceptive pills. Interesting. Um, plutonium. So don't eat your plutonium. Uh, and then solar radiation. So it's not all ingestible things. It's substances in and around us. And some of these these things actually are even, you'll see, like, are, um, well, we'll get into it. You you oriented us to who this is, like what the name of them are, but who is this? Is this a government organization? Is this yeah. a privately run organization or like the WHO? Okay. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so then there's group two A, which means probably carcinogenic to humans. So in this category, there's limited evidence. So it's usually association or some type of like mechanistic evidence in human beings. So, for example, these are things like anabolic steroids, um, having the profession of a hairdresser or a barber, um, night shift work, interesting, uh, red meat consumption, and and very, very hot beverages. So above 65 degrees Celsius or 149 degrees Fahrenheit. So these things are, again, there's a much more exhaustive list, but I picked some of the more interesting things that I was like, huh, um, probably carcinogenic to humans this is still not the category in which aspartame was put i have one more clarifying question do they come yeah. up with these recommendations are they like reviewing all the evidence and then making a guy a recommendation correct so if i like really wanted to learn more about why anabolic steroids why they gave it the recommendation can i like click on a link and they'll show me the research they went through or something yes i believe okay. so okay thank yeah. you so now we go to group 2b which is possibly carcinogenic to humans So in this group, there's less evidence than in 2A, meaning there's no clear association, but they they have studies that show that there may be some mechanistic evidence in animals. So this is aspartame's category. And then for context, other substances in this group include aloe vera, ginkgo biloba, kava root, pickled vegetables, digoxin, the heart medication, wireless phone radio frequencies. (laughs) We're not bringing up RFK Jr. on this podcast. It does not affect your blood brain barrier. Just I'm going to make that blanket statement and stick by it and not have to be any and not worried about checking my facts in the future. And then and metronidazole, which is a. Uh, oh, my God. Why can't I think of what metronidazole is? We're all waiting. Is that flagell? Yeah, that's an thank you. My brain went blank. I got a. Yeah. I had a Mitch McConnell moment. It's hard Sorry. to host a podcast and remember antibiotic <laughs> names. It's fine. So, <laughs> I think that's interesting context uh, because I don't think I think that some of, like pickled vegetables, cell phone, yeah. and that some of that stuff is like stuff that people do on a regular basis would never think about carcinogenic yeah. aspect of it. Um, but then aspartame, I think somebody would be like, yeah, maybe. Sure. Um, and then group three is just not classifiable. As, as to its carcinogenicity in humans. So it's just like, there's no there's not enough evidence, so we can't make a case. So I didn't even make a list of this. It's just like everything else. <laughs> or there, there's just no... Podcasts. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> um, so you're right, though. However, the IARC, it doesn't factor in dosage or route of exposure into its classifications, meaning it doesn't take into account how much of a product a person can safely consume or like in what way, like... 
is it just as bad if you breathe it in versus eat it versus snort it? I don't know, you know. So this advice comes from a separate WHO expert committee on food additives known as JECFA. The Joint WHO and Food and Agriculture Organization's Expert Committee on Food Additives. Yeah, one of the better national conferences I've ever been to. (laughs) JECFA. And that's alongside determinations from national regulators. So since 1981, JECFA has said that aspartame is safe to consume within accepted daily limits. So for example, an adult weighing 60 kilos, which is like 130 something pounds, would have to drink between 12 and 36 cans of diet soda. Oh my gosh. Depending on the amount of aspartame in the beverage every day to be at risk. Um, and its view, JECFA's view, has been widely widely shared by national regulators, including the US and in Europe. So the acceptable daily intake or ADI of aspartame by these bodies um, has been determined to be 50 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So that means most adults would have to eat 90 plus packets of equal daily to exceed this. Yeah. I mean, you basically have to like take a straw to an equal bowl and suck it up to, to have any conflict, like to meet this requirements. Why are we even talking about this as a possibility? Why did the, why is this even being out here? Well, I think it's to give context rather to, where this was classified. It is not yeah, a no, group. I, I think it's yeah. important that we're talking about it. I just don't understand why the AIARC recommendation even, we even care about it. Right. Like, what, what does it even matter? I think that maybe they also thought like, why does this matter? We're just going through different uh, substances and we decided it's aspartame's turn and we're going to put it on the list. And maybe some news outlet caught wind of that. Because really, I mean, Unbiased Science podcast came out with like, information about this before their the IARC's recommendations were made like they put their if you look at their stuff they put their stuff out like a few weeks before in anticipation of the shit's going to hit the fan here when this this is it's going to be on a bunch of news outlets because it's clickbaity and it's interesting for a second but yeah I wonder if it's just like it kind of reminds me of the episodes that we've or the episode that I've brought up a couple times that we've talked about potentially of having one of our newscaster friends talk about like how does this stuff get on the news like how do we decide what is meaningful public health information yeah, well, I, I would take that. I My interpretation says the IARC decides that they're going to put this on as a to be list. What was their marketing plan? You know, like maybe they we, didn't. Maybe they're like, we're a bunch of dorks who are putting things on lists. I think that's I think that that's the problem, Julie. I mean, that's I mean, that's the whole problem with like even the CDC going through COVID. I mean, I think yeah. you can't make health science based recommendations and just put them out there and be like, all right, public, here's our recommendation and move on. Like you have to you have to put context around it. You have to put right. a marketing campaign behind it. You need people who specialize in taking information and getting it to the general public. And you have to put them on the, I mean, there's reasons why major corporations pay billions of dollars in marketing to get a message out. Yeah. So, I wonder if that's a uniquely American problem. Right? And because this is an international organization, they're like, I don't know, you weird American capitalistic weirdos. You can market it and figure it out yourself. Here's our statement. Bye. I guess so. I just, I, I think that it has, it is not a secret that health-based communication is not ideal. We, your doctor yeah. friends podcast exists a little bit because we stink at taking health information and giving it to a regular person and we wanted to do a better job of it. And right. so 
I don't know. I just, I, I think if you're going to make a recommendation that you, you had to know that it was going to be a little bit inflammatory, not because people are in love with aspartame, but because a lot of people consume aspartame. Right. And if you use the word cancer with anything, right, it's going to strike a nerve. So you have right. to be able, you have to get up on a podium and then have public service announcements that basically say, we're putting this on 2B, but there's also lots of evidence that none of us consume enough of this to cause it to be a problem. So really, it only affects you if you have this amount, you know, to get up there and then everybody can take it in context. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I haven't done a deep enough dive into like their outward facing um, response to this. I mean, maybe they did say some stuff and, and it's just we're hearing more of the side of the sensationalized fun of it, you know. Okay. Or maybe they were thinking like this is kind of low stakes of like, well, if people decide to cut artificial sweeteners out of their diet because of this recommendation, then like, what's the major impact there? I don't know. People going back to sugar and having their diabetes get out of control. I'm not sure. Sure, Exactly. I, th- I mean, I think that's one counterpoint that I didn't really delve into is like, well, what what potential population based negatives could we see here if 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 folks are are too worried about utilizing artificial sweeteners? Like, do we think that there's going to be a ripple effect of how, yeah, control of metabolic disease or some other funny, weird butterfly effect that happens 10 years from now? Like, I don't know. Well, and I don't think there's a lot of sympathy for corporate America, but I also think that like, if, you know, aspartame is a main component of certain products. And then this comes out and aspartame is all of a sudden vilified, but is yeah. done in a way that is not accurate. You now have to change a lot of products because people won't consume things that have aspartame, right. which then affects you know, like margins and things. And then it could affect jobs. Like people may have to be fired. Like there's consequences here yeah. to not to being culture, <laughs> not well, to just not being accurate. Right. Agreed. Like, like, Agreed. like putting out a recommendation that is not necessarily wrong. Like, I think you can go to bat. I think the IARC can say we made a true statement because mm-hmm. I don't think they're wrong, but you didn't give the context, at least in the way that it's being delivered and the way people are taking it. And sure. so it's just, I think that you gave a half message. I think that's a valid point. Are, are there similar? So you told me aspartame, how much I need to like consume are there similar like how much i need to consume for like saccharin and the other ones the answer is yes and it's findable i just don't have it in front of me right now i guess and my next question for all to you of them, is... it's quite a bit it's oh. a lot okay for every one of them it's 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 more than you would think a, a reasonable person would consume on a day-to-day basis yeah but the, the answer is yes and i remember looking at like a table because i remember looking at like cups and things of it and, and each one was i don't know more than I think is what a reasonable person would do. I'm using legalese now because I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> I'm with you. Um, if you have more points, I'd like to hear them because now I'm going into my fun ending. No, did not we... my wrap up ending, but my my last point. Did we establish whether Steve is better? We established that there's no evidence to say it's better or not better. It's not on the list anywhere. Okay. When they call it a natural sweetener, does that like, is that a stretch? I don't know, because there's also, I think there, and we could get into a different talk, or especially if we bring on a nutritionist or someone who's like a disordered eating specialist or something talking about sort of the vilification of what we call chemicals. And it's like, everything's chemicals. Even the, 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 the substance in the, your grapes that makes it taste like a grape 
has an IUPAC name, has a chemical name, and it's just calling things chemical or processed, um, I think puts different um, values on nutrition that I don't think are always very fair or accurate. Yeah. I mean, I think the stuff we consume versus what we don't consume obviously makes a difference, but I always think of the shampoo bottle. If you've ever looked at the ingredients in a shampoo bottle, it's like a bunch of organic chemistry. It's like really long. But if they did the same thing for grapes, it would be a bunch of weird long words too. Yeah. Instead of just like contains grapes. So, But I do agree, like don't don't eat shampoo. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Good recommendation. Listen to your doctor friends. The... um, (laughs) Just to kind of like quickly summarize kind of, I think, where we're at before you get into your fun ending, it it seems to me that the point of this episode was to say, do artificial sweeteners pose a risk to my health? And it seems that the answer to that question would be only if you are really dedicated to consuming a ton of that artificial sweetener every single day at this point with the knowledge that we have. Yes. Okay. Consider that debunked. Perfect. All right, Jeremy. Last one here. What do you know about lycosin? I have no idea what that is. You've stumped me. Have you ever read <laughs> the Amazon reviews for sh- sugar-free Haribo gummy bears? I can honestly say no. Oh my god! I'm so excited to share this with you. Oh, this is great. Okay. Oh my god! I'm so excited. I would, okay. I would like to just put out there that I did not see this going. This is where the episode was going. <laughs> it's awesome. Okay, wait. So, lycosin is a sugar alcohol, which is a hydrogenated glucose syrup made from maltitol. And according to the Wikipedia page for lycosin, quote, lycosin's known side effects in adults include bloating, intestinal gurgling or rumbling. Um, And then, do you know how to pronounce this? Oh, it's borborygmi. Did you know that's how you say it? Like, like the the intestinal like gurgling. It's borborygmi. No. Have you I, ever seen that before? Something that's such a cool word. I had to look up on Google how to say it. God, so I it learned causes, so much from this podcast. <laughs> intestinal gurgling or, rum, or rumbling, which is borborygmi, um, and flatulence. So, some cases of extremely intense intestinal distress have been reported from consuming foods containing lycosin which led to many humorous reviews, which is clickable in, <laughs> on Wikipedia, of the German confectioner Haribo's sugarless gummy bears. Uh, there are some really, really, really great ones. I might just read a couple of like the real quick. Um, this is from a review titled, quote, Just don't, unless it's a gift for someone you hate. <laughs> I feel like this is mean, mean tweets for uh, your doctor friends. <laughs> the other title was Be Sure to Buy OxyClean Too. Oh, no. <laughs> Be sure to also buy a tub of OxyClean with this to get the blood and diarrhea stains out of your underwear, clothes, furniture, pets, loved ones, and ceiling fans. <laughs> it's it's great. This one's called Fully Weaponized Gummy Bears. <laughs> And they go on and on and on. Awesome and explosive. <laughs> this review is just called You Don't Understand. <laughs> this is this is great. Oh god. Okay. Gastrointestinal Armageddon. All right, that's enough. Well, we are an edu- we are an educational podcast. So <laughs> not only did we just 
tell people so, why they shouldn't have sugar-free Haribo gummy bears, or frankly, any brand of sugar-free gummy bears. We probably shouldn't just call out one brand here. I don't know. There's some new sugar-free stuff that has like stevia and monk fruit in it. I just actually had some that are gummies, but I was so worried because of what I knew about the Haribo sugar-free, but it's a completely different non-nutritive sugar. This one we don't absorb. <laughs> Yeah, and it stays in our gut, and then our gut just goes crazy, go nuts, and then apparently you paint your walls. So yuck. Yeah, so uh, we can't we can't absorb that sugar alcohol, and you know correct. what does like the sugar alcohol? The bacteria in our bowels, <laughs> and right. so the bacteria re- starts eating the sugar alcohol and creating a lot of gas. So gas, and then and then influx of water into your yeah. lower GI tract where it's not supposed to be, and then that water needs to leave your body very quickly. So it's not complicated. It's it's a situation where when they made these sugar-free candies, they knew what the reaction in the bowels was going to be. Yeah. But you didn't Once, gain any calories from it. Uh, you lost a lot of water weight. <laughs> well, it's so funny because when uh like when I I personally like to wrap up, like I, I do utilize non-sugar sweeteners pretty frequently. I mean, I don't drink a ton of soda pop, but if I do, I usually will have like, yeah, like a Diet Coke or a Coke Zero or something like that. Or um, like Adam and I, after dinner, we'll have um, like Halo Top or like the ice creams that are lower calorie because they taste really good. And, you know, you can eat a pint between the two of us and it's only like 300 calories and it's nice to have something sweet at the end of your meal. Um, But it's funny because if you look at a lot of the packaging of these like desserty items or candy, it a very a lot of them very clearly say no sugar alcohols in here because I think they know that they're combating the the uh, the gastrointestinal Armageddon. Yeah, I well, I find a lot of it deceitful though with stevia because it also has no artificial sweeteners, mm. and it, it it's banking that on the fact that it's saying stevia is a natural sweetener, and so yeah. when you says no artificial sweeteners, it makes you think okay, there's no sweeteners in here. I've been fooled a few times where I'm like, oh, no artificial sweeteners and it's low in sugar. And what you'll notice is that actually one of the first ingredients will like one of the ingredients will be sugar. And you're like, oh, it's only got five grams of sugar. And you're like, oh, it's low sugar. And then if you look at the end, there's actually a sweetener at the end. Yeah. So right. the combo of both and it says no artificial sweeteners. And I just it really bothers me. I am. Um, I'm the complete opposite. I can pick out a sweetener in anything. Like if you handed me five things and you're like, which one of these has the, the artificial sweetener in it? I would I'd know which one it is. I'm like incredibly sensitive to it. And I, it makes me more thirsty. I hate how I feel when I have them. And I'm the person that's shopping and I'm like, I find me the thing that has four ingredients. And if one of them sugar, I have no problem with it. I'll just have less. Yeah. I'm not necessarily, I think I'm, I am, I do enjoy sweet things. And so I'm trying to balance it a little bit more um, because I know I like them and I know my body craves it. So it's like, well, I'll try to parse it out. So I don't feel like I'm just consuming a lot of, I don't know. I don't want to give the impression that I don't like sweet things. I will need an yeah. entire tub of, tub of ice cream if somebody lets me. I <laughs> love ice cream. Oh, I love them. Yeah, but I, I just, I give, I give into it a lot. <laughs> I've had a scoop of that ice cream that you referenced before, and I didn't know it had sweetener, but within one bite, I was like, oh, that's yeah. not an official sweetener. I don't want that. Interesting. Yeah, I guess I don't, I don't have as much of a, of a palate for it. It goes, goes right down the gullet and I enjoy it, but. It doesn't have sugar alcohol in it, so it stays where it's supposed to be. (laughs) Good news. It's not going to cause cancer for it. No. Yeah. So in the end, there's no clear data to suggest a causal uh, connection between uh, artificial sweeteners or non-sugar sweeteners. I think that's why they call them two different things. Because, yeah, you could say that monk fruit extract and stevia are not necessarily, quote unquote, artificial. 
I would love to talk about that in, a, in an upcoming podcast about the language we use around food and how it can be harmful sometimes. Um, so yeah, there's no clear data to suggest a causal connection between artificial or non-sugar sweeteners and the incidence of or the prevention of cancer, diabetes, or cardiovascular disease. So put a little Splenda in your coffee if you want, or don't. Just maybe stay away from the Haribo sugar-free gummy bears. <laughs> Listen to your doctor, friends. <laughs> the amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Music.